Hi, and welcome to Maybe Today Matinee, the podcast about all things film before you were born. I'm David. I'm Monica. And today we're going to be wrapping up our discussion of animated films with the 1973 Rene Laloux film, Fantastic Planet. The planet Egam is populated by huge blue humanoid creatures called drag. Ohm, humans who were kidnapped and brought to Egam by the drag some time ago, live either as pets to the drag or in the wild. An Ohm and her child are being terrorized by three young drag. They kill the mother before being scared off by Master Sin, a prominent drag politician, and his daughter Tiva. Sin allows Tiva to rescue the Ohm child and take him as a pet, placing a collar on him that Tiva can use to physically control him. Tiva names the Ohm child Ter and becomes emotionally close to him, frequently playing with and speaking to him. She takes lessons via a headset, which transmits the information directly to her brain. Ter, who she holds during these lessons, is able to absorb the information as well. He learns a great deal of vital information, including how to read the drag language, the history of the drag, and the geography of the planet. Over the years, Tiva grows older and loses interest in Ter, who decides to abscond with the headset. Out in the wild, he meets a free ohm who cuts his collar off and introduces him to a group of wild ohm who live in a tree in an abandoned park. Ter uses his headset to begin teaching the rest of the ohm the knowledge he has. Eventually, the drag come to purge the park of Ohm, treating wild Ohm as vermin to be exterminated. Some of the Ohm are able to escape, successfully killing one of the drag in self-defense. The Ohm make their way to an abandoned rocket site and begin developing rocket technology, hoping to leave Egam for an orbiting planet said to be unpopulated. Meanwhile, the drag are disturbed by the rebellion of the Ohm and elect to begin more frequent purges of them. The Ohm are able to launch just in time to escape a drag purge of the rocket site. They arrive at the planet only to find it's a space reserved for an elaborate drag mating ritual. The drag meditate and travel to the planet psychically. There, they meet alien beings from other galaxies and procreate with them. The Ohm interrupt the procreation, threatening the drag. Back on Egam, Ter speaks with the drag leaders, saying he wants to avoid mutual destruction and, le- and live peacefully. At the end, we discover the substance of the film is part of a lesson on a drag's headset, revealing that the Ohm and drag now live peacefully together. Okay, so Monica, I guess what are, what are your first impressions of the film? It was interesting. Intriguing. Care to expand? <laughs> Um, yeah, it was interesting. Well, I guess we'll, we'll get into that a little bit later (laughs) as we go along. Uh, first off, a a little bit of, uh, production information about this film. So first off, it's based on the novel Arms and Seri by Stéphane Vaux, who, uh, actually had a day job as a dental surgeon, but kind of in his free time, like to watch, uh, like to write science fiction novels. Its director, uh, René Laloux, uh, originally went to art school and studied painting and kind of had a, had a, a series of different jobs before really 
officially getting into animation. This film, Fantastic Planet, is by far his most famous work. Uh, before this, he had he had worked on several short films, and after this, he did two feature-length animated films, which were also science fiction. Uh, Time Masters from 1982 and Gandahar from 1987. So these films are actually pretty pretty difficult to find. I had a hard time finding any any digital availability for either one of them. Uh, I don't believe there's a Criterion release of them. I don't know if there may be DVDs or Blu-rays of them floating around. Were these Time Masters and Gandahar and his shorts, are they all animated? Uh, I believe so. I do. I don't think he ever worked in any um in live any action. live action film. I know his his the two features are for sure animated. I don't know about the shorts. One, I guess, one interesting thing to note about Gandahar in particular is that it was brought over to the United States uh, by Miramax and it got the Harvey Weinstein treatment. So uh, Harvey Weinstein, whom I'm sure everyone recognizes as being the the kind of culpable face of Me Too and being, you know, the horrifying sex criminal. I guess prior to all those revelations being out in the public, he was also very notorious within the film world, specifically for his business practices and so he had the nickname Harvey Scissorhands uh, because he would like to acquire films and then make a bunch of his own edits his own cuts before releasing them uh, and apparently Gandahar is uh, one of these films that kind of fell fell victim to his his kind of editorial complex so I guess if you needed another reason to hate Harvey Weinstein there you go a brief Side note about Harvey Weinstein, something that that I think is pretty interesting. Uh, The film Spirited Away, when it came over to the U.S., Harvey Weinstein wanted to uh, make cuts. And the director, Hayao Miyazaki... Apparently, I don't. I haven't really seen specific veri- verification of the story, but apparently Miyazaki mailed him a samurai sword with a note in the box saying "No cuts," um, <laughs> which is pretty pretty great. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> the other creative force on this film, or I should say, the other main creative force on this film, is Roland Topor who was credited as the co-writer of the screenplay and also the graphic artist, the graphic artist on this film. So essentially he worked in collaboration with the animation studio on creating kind of the general look and style of the film before and after doing this film. He was perhaps best known as a surrealist cartoonist. Uh, So he had a lot of work that kind of wound up, in newspapers and books and and was kind of a um, artist for hire, so to speak. He had previously collaborated with Lalu on some of his shorts and also had an acting career. He played Renfield in Werner Herzog's Nosferatu Phantom Der Nacht, which we mentioned in our episode, I guess a couple of months ago, on the original Nosferatu. And also notably, he was he was part of the film collective The Panic Movement, uh, which I don't know that much about, but apparently it was a movement that was founded in France in 1962. The other two members were Fernando Araval and Alejandro Jodorowsky. They're 
principal kind of motivation behind forming this group was to bring surrealism back to its kind of more shocking, hostile roots. Uh, because by this point, surrealism had become uh, pretty mainstream. In our episode about uh, the Three Caballeros, uh, you had mentioned that like Disney was going to work with uh, Salvador Dali on making a film. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think this is kind of this is kind of the I guess the the response to that the kind of mainstream commodification of of like surrealist art. Um, do you, like do you have any kind of specific examples of what they did to make it shocking again, or how it was different from the kind of kind of mass marketed version of surrealism? So I can't really speak to again this uh the panic movement and I'm not really familiar with Araval, but Jordorowski is a pretty famous surrealist. So um audiences, I think if you're familiar with any of his work, it would uh most famous famously be El Topo or alternatively uh the Holy Mountain is also pretty popular. I think it's kind of it's kind of hard to explain without going through those films and listing kind of specifically what happens, but that's really infused with that kind of like hostile, surreal nature. So just to use El Topo as an example, it's kind of a, a an acid western um, about this really violent gunslinger who kind of goes through the desert, who's searching for enlightenment. Um, and he comes across like a, a bun- there's, I'm trying to remember because it's been a very long time since I've seen it. Uh, but there is one scene where Jordorowski hired multiple different actors who were, who were missing limbs, <gasps> uh, to kind of come together as like one person. I believe it was like three different actors who were kind of like playing as one person. Interesting. Uh, I may be misremembering part of that, but that's kind of, I guess, kind of what we're talking about, that kind of imagery. Okay. I think in talking about, again, the the return to the shocking roots of surrealism, I think we can probably get into that a little bit, in particular with this film, to get into the animation a little bit. Uh, so first off, the film was animated in Czechoslovakia by a a animation company called Československi Film Export. And I think if you've been listening to the podcast and kind of following along with the movies we've been covering, uh, this animation style is actually not too, too different from Harry Everett Smith's Heaven and Earth Magic. Uh, I think it, it clearly has a higher budget in some ways is more sophisticated and drawn out, but a lot of the same kind of cut and paste style is present here. So we have kind of figures that, that almost, they appear less like kind of the, the movement feels less organic than, than something like a a Disney film would. It appears to be like paper figures that are moved slowly in kind of a uh, stop motion animation style. The so the color palette, I think there there are a few moments of very striking colors. Most notably, the the drag have a very very striking like blue skin, I suppose, uh, and with really piercing red eyes. Uh, and another thing I noticed about it was was some of the shading. And I'm not I'm not really an animation or or art specialists in general but i noticed a lot of the shadings reminded me kind of of what you would see 
of drawings from old-timey newspapers or Monica, I know you we've talked about this before. Our parents had a cup that mm-hmm. had the Sears catalog on it. Yeah. Right. So like that kind of thing. Right. And even gosh, it's been a long time since I looked at an actual paper newspaper, but at least not too long ago you could still see ads. I'm thinking specifically of for like uh, clothing stores where rather than having it, it, it'll be in like the black and white section of the newspaper. So there's no color. And, but rather than having a photograph, they actually have a, a drawing of a model wearing the styles that they're selling at the store. And it reminds me a lot of that. And I, I think the, the, the reason um, that persis- persisted until at least quite recently is that when you, when you take a, when you have a black and white photograph, there's a lot of details in the clothing that become a little bit difficult to see. And if you're trying to advertise the the clothing by drawing it, you can actually bring out those details better. So that's something that you still see also in like political cartoons and stuff like that. So I guess I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, something Lalu said. Uh, And this was, I found this in an article by Istvan Cicery Rone Jr. called What is Estranged in Science Fiction Animation? And so Lalu, he talked about, he had in mind that there was a, a sort of bifurcation of animation styles between the United States and, and Europe. And his argument was that American animation was focused entirely on movement. And so that's why we got these characters with kind of very rounded features uh, that really frequently defy laws of physics and gravity and all these things. So the classic example being the um, the roadrunner who's able to, to run through like the painting of the highway and then Wiley Coyote smacks into it because it's, it's a wall, right? Like we're we're kind of playing a lot with all all these really all this vivid motion and kind of I don't want to say sketch but kind of like looser art and Lalu argued that in European animation tradition like the graphics were more of the focus so I, when I was speaking earlier about kind of the cutout animation style and the stop motion techniques a lot of that is because they're very intricately drawn backgrounds as well as uh creatures who don't have that same like american like mickey mouse ease of movement they're very i wouldn't say static but like the the movement seems to be a lot more naturalistic here i kind of wondered so i I have like kind of two competing ideas in my head the first one is that if European animation is less focused on motion, like to what extent is that a product of having like a smaller budget? So you can see that in Fantastic Planet, there's a lot fewer frames per second. So you don't have the smooth feeling that you have in Disney cartoons, right? Or I don't even think it was as smooth as um, Magic Boy, which we watched in our last episode. So I have kind of that in mind. But then the other thing I had in mind was something that I noticed so much and you were talking about the line work is that in this in Fantastic Planet not just the backgrounds but the the moving parts of the animation the characters um, and these creatures they have all this kind of intricate shading that kind of gives you a feeling of depth and that's something that is also very tedious to do and this is in the age before um, computers so it would be 
also more expensive to do to do all that shading work each time the the figures move. So while you were talking right now, really quick, I pulled up some stills from Fantastic Planet. And I pulled up some stills from Disney's Robin Hood, which I think came out around the same time in the early 70s. If you look at the stills from Robin Hood, and I think this is common to most, if not all, Disney traditional animation, the backgrounds are shaded, but the the characters, the moving parts are not. Um, you don't see, like I'm looking at a picture of Robin Hood, and you don't see like any shadow on the sides of his face. There's kind of no depth. So even though the movement was a lot smoother, they didn't have to, when they were going in there and painting, they could just kind of do these flat areas of color. It's like, where do you put your detail? Do you put, and I guess it kind of comes back to exactly what you're saying. Do you put your efforts into the movement or do you put it into the graphics? To ask you a question, I don't, this has been something that's bothered me for forever, but in, in, I think I most frequently notice it in Warner Brother animation for whatever reason. A lot of times when a character is doing something and then they cut to, let's say, like a table with a hammer and some other things on it, you can tell beforehand which element of the table the character is going to interact with or pick up because it looks very distinct from the rest Mm -hmm. uh because i guess it's not it's not part of that back that background so i guess it would be it would be hard for you to respond without me being able to show you some of this but like would your guess be that that's kind of the result of like a piece of animation that does not have that shading being kind of placed directly in in company with like the shaded background elements Right, because if you have like a hammer on the table, but then Bugs Bunny is about to go pick it up, you can't make it part of the detailed background because then it's going to change in appearance once the once it has to move. So it has to be part of the animation so that it looks the same. But you're right, you can see definitely see like the, the distinction between the, the part that will move and the rest of the background. Well, I guess kind of given, I think it's really interesting talking, like you were talking about how a certain amount of it is kind of budgetary restriction, but also it's, you know, where are you choosing to put most of your your focus and most of your effort? Which, like, which of the two do you prefer uh, personally? I guess the the kind of the, the you know, going by Lalu's, uh, La Luz standards, like the American version or kind of the, the European like graphic fo- focus version? Um, I mean, I guess my answer is very boring, but I don't have a preference. <laughs> I think <laughs> I think they're both interesting to watch in different ways. I, I do want to kind of say that I think if you're somebody who's coming from the background where most of your exposure to animation is Disney, your first impression of something like Fantastic Planet may be just that it looks cheap, just because you're so used to the more fluid style. So you may have to like kind of sit there and think about it to recognize that it's just kind of, and I'm sure like they didn't have the same budget either, but still you uh, you might have to think about it to appreciate the ways that they did um, put in a lot of work to make it interesting to look at and beautiful in its own way that's different from how Disney does it. I wonder if people would still like kind of see this as being cheap because I'm sure some would, but I think what's, what's interesting about this film is 
This is certainly one of those, you know, makes a midnight circuit at revival houses and in some ways has become kind of a cult psychedelic film. So like some of the, I guess some of the quote unquote cheaper aspects are like the the elements that we might have one time seen as cheaper seem to have taken on like a new meaning as being kind of making the film almost more alien because like American audiences are not used to the style. Yeah, sure. You could argue the same, like when we were talking about Magic Boy and how it's it's kind of different from a lot of later Japanese animation, how part of the almost trademark of Japanese animation is the, the like open closed flap of the character's mouths. Maybe that's partly a budget issue, but also that's just kind of part of the style now, you know? Right. One, one technique I noticed while watching the film is that earlier on in the film, Tur, when he's still super young, kind of happens upon a group of uh, drag elders who are, who are, I guess, meditating. Through the meditation, whatever exactly is happening, their bodies are kind of changing forms. And it's really interesting because it's a very, again, like psychedelic kind of trippy effect. But like if you look at it, you can tell pretty clearly that it's not that many cells of animation and they're kind of just fading in between the two. So, you know, for... For like a three second chunk of the film, they can have two separate drawings and just take multiple pictures of them just with one, you know, one fading out and one coming into the forefront. And I think it's an interesting kind of a, a comparison with the final 15-ish minutes of Three Caballeros, which was also psychedelic, but like very, very hand-drawn every element of that. What, uh, one thing that, that kind of captivated me about the film was specifically the design of the alien figures, the drag, uh, because they're very, like, very, very human-like, very humanoid, mostly except for the skin color and red eyes, and their ears are kind of gill-like. What did you think of their design and, like, kind of what, how did that impact what you thought of of them as kind of uh, characters or, I guess, like a, a, a race? Um, I kind of thought that making them basically humanoid um, makes them more relatable to the audience. And this has kind of been standard for alien, like, representations of aliens, extraterrestrials, and a lot of different media, right? They're different from us, but they're still recognizable as humanoid. And on this planet, we do see other alien creatures, but they're basically the way that we, like, humans have, you know, cats and dogs and cows and horses. They're animal-like aliens. And then the drag are the human-like aliens. Maybe in, in the artist perception, this is how you make the drag more relatable and you make the allegory stronger, which we're going to talk about later versus if you just had like amoeba looking things. Right. Like you said, there's so much history of kind of humanoid aliens. Um, The entire history of like the Star Trek, you know, next generation, deep space nine, the original, whichever uh, is filled to the brim with humanoid aliens. But it does seem like now there is kind of a tendency to want to, turn to something that might be more quote-unquote realistic or perhaps just like differentiated from humans so like the alien creatures in arrival were distinctly not human very much not human and so that seems to be kind of the current trend is is going down that almost lovecraftian like beings we can't understand 
uh, motif. And it's interesting to kind of come here and see, like you said, the, the, the kind of still powerful trend of the humanoid alien, like in full, full effect. I think about how, and you'll hate this, but I think about how in recent, more and more in recent years, we've kind of discovered how intelligent octopuses and squid are, uh, especially octopuses. Whereas traditionally, like we've kind of known that an- the animals who are s- smart are animals who are closely related to us, right? Chimpanzees, bonobos, apes, monkeys, that kind of thing. Um, and also, to a lesser extent, dolphins, elephants, dogs, right? But they're all uh, mammals, I guess parrots too. But then more more recently, we get evidence of how smart these undersea creatures are and that, that they can recognize people and they have, you know, the ones who are in aquariums, they have their humans that they like and the humans that they don't like and they can solve puzzles and stuff. It's so interesting because that's basically a kind of convergent evolution because they're so different from us. And I just wonder if knowledge of that biology kind of influences the way that extraterrestrials get represented in newer media or if that's going to happen even more in the future. I mean, it's interesting in the way that, like, impending doom is fascinating, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I think that's a really great point. Again, to reference Lovecraft, like, most of the ancient gods and, like, the higher beings, the creatures that he imagined, so many of them were kind of related to the water, like, you know, sailors running into C- Cthulhu and whatnot. And that was, I mean, that was gosh maybe the 1920s so i how long is this kind of suspicion of the intelligence of squid (laughs) going around (laughs) just to kind of round out our discussion of the animation i did want to talk a little bit about depth in the film and how this is another way in which it's similar to heaven and earth magic in that I guess unlike heaven and earth magic, it does specifically have like three dimensions. It does show characters moving on, on a three dimensional plane, but particularly in the opening scene, it really cements itself as primarily functioning on the X and Y axis and kind of, I think it's interesting you were saying earlier about so many of the characters and the drawings like being given depth with shading and they absolutely mm-hmm. do have that but then the motion is very much like left left right up down. It made me think of how this film the aesthetic is kind of storybook like and you can kind of see them almost like they're moving through the pages of a children's book even even the art style looks like a lot of children's books. In a way, it makes it makes the story a little bit less disturbing because it makes it like a little bit distant from you. All right, so let's talk a little bit about the sound design in this film. Uh, so I guess there's kind of no end to the heaven and earth magic comparisons I'm going to make, but I'm going to keep doing it. Uh, one of the interesting things about this film as in heaven and earth magic is that there's kind of a, a, not a really strong line between audio that is diegetic and non-diegetic. Uh, so that is to say audio that's occurring within the context of the film and, 
the film's kind of overlaid soundtrack for art benefit, uh, which again is something that happened in Heaven and Earth Magic. And here uh, we have a score that was composed by French jazz pianist Alain Gorgay. And so this score has uh, obviously a lot of jazz elements. And I think that the kind of easiest comparison, or at least the easiest comparison for me to make, is that it's very similar to prog rock. Uh, so, you know, King Crimson or maybe like the Mars Volta, if you're thinking of something more recent. And so as a result of that, it really, it really kind of emphasizes, I guess, the alienness of the planet and the the things that are going on with like heavy use of kind of synthesizers and keyboards and because we're given so much imagery that is alien uh that we are not we're not really familiar with like the the headsets that transmit information to your brain there's no real life counterpart so we don't know how that's supposed to sound and as a result a lot of those elements wind up sounding kind of like they're just part of that i don't want to say just part of the soundtrack but they wind up melding easier with that uh which i think is a really interesting it, it creates kind of a dream-like effect violating that that traditional boundary between like what's what's happening within the world of the film and what's happening within the presentation of the film uh i did want to mention that this is the 70s in europe so this sound is actually really popular and specifically uh this was a french film but in germany around this time krautrock was becoming more popular so if you're familiar with bands like faust or can or Kraftwerk, it's kind of that kind of sound we'll touch on this a little bit later but the interesting thing about kraut rock is that it was a really explicit refutation of kind of german traditions of music post world war ii because a lot of the the kind of younger musicians in germany in the 70s obviously would not want to be associated with like the immediate legacy of germany being nazism and so there was there was kind of an urge to to craft something outside of that. And that's why we get these kind of, again, these progressive odd time signatures, synthesizers, etc. cetera. Um, and then just as a side note, I did want to mention also those of you who are horror fans, particularly Italian horror fans, this score is, it bears a lot of similarity to some of, uh, uh, Claudio Simonetti's work on Dario Argento films and like kind of more specifically the band Goblin. Um, so if you're familiar with that, you kind of know like the general sound that we're going to get here. Uh, so Monica, I know, I know you had said that a lot of times music doesn't really grip you unless it's really stand out. I was wondering if this score struck you in any particular way and maybe how you would compare this to say a uh, John Williams score of like close encounters or star Wars. I noticed while I was watching that to my ears, the soundtrack was the soundtrack was very modern sounding. I feel like Disney, and I know we're always comparing animation to Disney, but I feel like we kind of can't help it. Um, but Disney has always kind of stuck very much to its Broadway and small C classical um, soundtracks. But I think that this kind of prog rock really suits the story that Fantastic Planet is telling 
Also, as I have said on the podcast, and as you know, I'm in general not a fan of sci-fi, but I do and I have enjoyed like Star Wars, just like everybody else, at least the original movies. And I wonder how much that might be impacted by the fact that Star Wars uses that kind of traditional classical soundtrack. So it's not such an alienating, no pun intended, story, you know, compared to other sci-fi. Well, that's a, an interesting point of discussion. because So to reference an article that's on Criterion's website that was written by Michael Brook called Fantastic Planet Gambus Amalga, he talks a little bit about kind of the choice of music here and how the use of kind of very specifically like 19th century orchestral sounds in science fiction is very deliberate because the idea is to create something that will not age, right? Mm. Whereas if you start using electric guitar synthesizers that, and I think that's, it's, I don't think it ages poorly, but I think this soundtrack very much ties the film to its time to the seventies. But like you were saying with uh, kind of with those other films, with the orchestra, it, it feels more, I guess like fairy tale like, and in some ways that's, I guess that's, that's comforting and, Mm -hmm. and almost neutral. Yeah. And I, this is kind of off topic, but I know you had talked before about how star Wars, but despite it's kind of sci-fi overlay is, more or less like a traditional fairy tale story, right? About good and evil. So that might be another reason why it feels more comfortable. Right. And to to tap in a little bit to our discussion on Solaris, I think that's something that that's interesting is that you have this kind of division of science fiction films or I guess science fiction material, uh, some of which is very much created as a discussion about modern kind of modern realities, right? So 1982 Ridley Scott's Blade Runner and one of the most iconic shots in that film of the uh, the skyline and all the uh, the flying cars. Uh, there's a giant like Coca Cola ad, right? This idea of corporate absolute corporate power in the future, and it's no coincidence that this happens during the time of Ronald Reagan, right? Like that's a comment on that moment, as opposed to again some science fiction material, the the original novel Solaris, which was very much supposed to be about alien things. There was not an attempt to comment on on specifically human emotion or, or kind of modern human problems, but that was actually really interested in the specific concepts that were kind of its its main text. Can I actually ask a question? And this may not really be super podcast related, but you mentioned Krautrock. Is that really named after the kind of slur for Germans during... World War Two. Yeah, so I will say my uh, my understanding of it is the term Krautrock was invented by British music critics to understand kind of all the music that was coming out of Germany at that time, and so those musicians, particularly I know members of Faust, uh, bristled at the term and argued that it wasn't. It's not like a proper classification it was just a term they were using because the music coming out of germany at that period sounded so distinct uh that being said it you know i think if you listen to craft work and then you listen to can like they're pretty they're pretty different kind of the unfortunate reality of the term is that like people bristled at it and abs i totally understand why but 
it kind of got accepted into the lexicon and now we kind of this is the way we discuss it right Mm -hmm. okay so we've been hinting at it a little bit but i want to get into kind of the meat the allegorical meat of this film which we've talked about films being not subtle before and i think this one really takes the cake so first off this you know there are a couple of different dimensions that people have argued that this this film works on allegorically uh so one would be animal rights uh, i think most obviously because the ohm there our main character terror who is an ohm is essentially stripped away from his mother who is murdered and then made a pet and given a collar and like subjugated in that way. Uh, and so there's a, there's a lot of that, like, like Tiva, his owner who seems to really love him, but does kind of very little for him because he has this kind of yearning for knowledge. He has this, this yearning to do other things and he is, he is chained to her. But then, you know, when we continue, I think we start seeing more statements about generally racism and genocide. So first off, the most obvious is the uh, the drag choosing to purge the ohm, uh, obviously being an allusion to the Holocaust and and other genocidal acts right like that's pretty pretty transparently it's meaning so those are just just kind of a couple of things that it seemed like the film was gesturing at i was wondering what kind of what you thought of the allegories here and like what i guess what you thought of the intended message and whether it worked um i thought the messaging was very obvious Maybe it comes across as too obvious to us in 2020 when, and I guess, I I don't know if this is true, but perhaps this allegory was a, a bit more of a novel thing at the time that this movie came out. But I kind of wondered, do you know if the goal of the filmmakers was to be an allegory for animal rights or was it to be an allegory for subjugated human populations? And if it was supposed to be both or if they're conflating both that's a problematic issue because we don't want to be comparing human beings to non-human animals right i can't say specifically what the exact intentions of the creators of the film were but I think this is like kind of what you bring up. This is precisely why the the kind of allegorical elements of this film bother me so much, because I think it's it's in some ways pretty transparently to a degree about animal rights. But it does also want to be, like you said, about subjugated humans and slavery and, you know, the Holocaust and all of these things. And frankly, when you try and do something like this, there is kind of no succeeding because whether whether they intended it or not, what you wind up doing is comparing human beings to animals, uh, which is not like just absolutely unacceptable under any conditions. And I think it's it's somewhat similar. I don't know. I don't know if you've seen the film um, Zootopia from Disney. I haven't. So that's, I think, kind of a similarly, like, allegorical work. That's Disney trying to kind of 
play at its, I guess, progressive, quote-unquote progressive base by creating something that is allegorical for police brutality. Because at that at the point that it was released, it was um, post-Ferguson, so this was something that was still very much in the American zeitgeist, but also before the Black Lives Matter protests after the, the killing of George Floyd by a Minneapolis uh, PD officer. And that was that was kind of a similar situation. The idea was that they wanted to kind of broach this topic, but have something that's still like kind of appropriate for children. And so what they wound up constructing was an allegory in which essentially they wanted you to interpret it as the prey animals being uh, sheep, rabbits, etc., were essentially like the white people there and then the predator animals being presumably the black people and so the film you know try it kind of makes this point that like oh well no but it's not right because we're in this civilized society and the you know the predators are good and we shouldn't make these assumptions about them but like it it horribly falls on its face because of this grotesque obscene inexcusable comparison and so as you know whatever it was trying to do allegorically it has made the argument for white supremacy and i think this film as well and this really this really bothers me about it because i really love the aesthetic i really love how it's constructed in the animation so many of these elements but especially the finale when we reveal that the drag and the ohm like live together in peace the film is constructing an allegory about the Holocaust and saying essentially that Jews and Nazis should live together peacefully. And you can argue that like, well, the filmmakers wouldn't have wanted that. They're trying to kind of speak to a broader truth about, you know, humanity or whatever, but that doesn't really matter because you've already set up the dynamic of like drag are in power are tyrannical, are essentially slaveholders, murderers, etc., and the Ohm are the victims. After that, you cannot create an ending in which they live together peacefully that, is, that can be con- interpreted in any way as progressive. Do you think um, that maybe it's just that this movie, they wanted... They wanted the audience to be able to envision a, a, a future where everybody can live live together peacefully. But maybe the problem is that this movie kind of skipped out on the the part of the story that shows what the drag have to do to make that possible. I, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a kind of the, the bigger piece of the puzzle that's missing. Kind of part of the problem is that, like, once you cement the drag as being the oppressive force and you cement the fact that the drag and the ohm, they're not different people. They're different species, right? And so if you set up this allegory, this idea that the drag would have to do something in order to not be genocidal when the film has told us that this is this is kind of their default mode this is who they are as a species which i guess is why you know kind of why this doesn't work you you should not be making allegories about social injustice between human beings and situating the affected parties or rather the the affected party and the transgressor as different species because you're creating kind of an absolute value to them 
So in some ways, it kind of reminds me of the comic Mouse, uh, spelled M-A-U-S, by Art Spiegelman. And so that was a comic in which he was essentially depicting some of um, the events of his father's life, who was a Polish Jew who survived the Holocaust. But as I, I guess like as an artistic device, when making the comic, he portrayed the Jews as mice and the Nazis as cats. People much smarter than me have written a lot about this comic, so I suggest you you seek out that literature. Uh, but one of the big problems with it is that, like again, once you create that allegory, you are arguing that these two parties default to specific positions. the The Nazis are cats and Jews are are mice in some way. That is that is kind of, I would say, you are making an argument that Nazism and persecution of Jews is in some way the natural order of things. And this isn't this film, Fantastic Planet, is not as much of a kind of like one-to-one comparison as that, but I think it has all of those same flaws. Uh, and whether it's specifically saying this or not, again, this is, you know, like 2020 brain and like the United States is going through a tremendous amount of turmoil. And I, I don't doubt that that's affecting my position on this. But like at this moment, I really have no time for any literature, film, artistic piece that has anything to say about like bigoted slaveholding genocidal lunatics other than they should be torn out of seats of power and removed from society. Um, Something I thought about was that allegories as a whole, they can be powerful if, if the message is a novel one where it's something that people truly haven't been exposed to. Um, and I kind of felt, and possibly, like I said earlier, it's because this is an older film. I kind of felt that for me, there's, there's not really anything in this film that's new or eye-opening. Something that a movie that came out recently that I thought worked well was Get Out, because I think it exposed to a lot of people the the kind of non-obvious racism of microaggressions. Um, and also how America was built on black labor. And, and, and so that's why I think that that one reason that that movie was so good, because it, it really maybe made a lot of people think about this stuff. But if 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 the message of a film is kind of already known, I don't really know how much it will do for the people who are unconvinced. I don't think a movie like Fantastic Planet is going to change any minds, you know? Sure. Well, that was another thing after watching the ending that that kind of perturbed me is, and I, I don't know this to be true, but my kind of gut instinct was that the the creators, uh, Lalu and Topor, were primarily creating a film because they were interested in kind of the visual life of it. And I think that's, that's where this film really, really shines. It's, it's wonderful. And, and it does something that a lot of science fiction has that science fiction and fantasy has trouble with. It introduces you to a world that feels like it was already made. Like it exists outside of the specific story you're hearing, right? We interact with all these creatures that don't aren't necessarily explained but we understand them to be you know a a part of the planet's ecology right it has these passages about 
kind of the 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 geography of the different planets and so it feels very vibrant and real and it kind of feels like that was their their kind of main motivation in creating the film and then this this message is kind of superficially plastered onto it almost because they needed a story mm-hmm. to kind of go back to your your point about get out which I totally agree. I think I think Get Out was really phenomenal for the reasons you you listed. But sometimes, in in some ways, I do kind of wonder. I guess this is this is kind of the big question with allegories: is do they hold up to the same degree as other pieces do? Specifically, with the example of Get Out, I think it will primarily because I think it conveys its message with a tremendous amount of emotion. So I think, and everyone, everyone talked about this when it came out and kind of ever since for good, for good reason, but like the sunken place is a tremendously emotionally upsetting sequence, right? Those sequences are very, very upsetting and visceral. And I think that's something that's going to let the movie live on uh, and and continue to be appreciated artistically. But, like, will the allegorical elements of it really survive, I suppose, on repeated viewings. That's the main thing about allegories is to a certain extent, like once you complete them, you understand the contents absolutely. So what's kind of the benefit of revisiting or or re-examining them? Well, so it may be that in 10 years, 20 years time, Get Out doesn't seem maybe kind of the way that Fantastic Planet seems to me now. Get Out won't seem that interesting to a newer, younger generation who is maybe better educated on race issues. Well, which does bring up an interesting question, though. I guess we tend to, or I should say, I tend to, in some ways, incorporate the longevity of art into my analysis of it. And so I tend to think that like, oh, if something is longer lived, it's better. But then maybe like Get Out being especially impactful in, I believe it was released in 2016. Get Out being like a powerhouse then and then kind of like somewhat depleting in value later after it's kind of entered the cultural zeitgeist, right? Maybe that's not, maybe that doesn't really poorly reflect on it. Maybe it's really good that we had like an allegorical piece like that at that moment. You know, it's, I mean, kind of the, the have your cake and eat it too problem, right? Like maybe eating it at that moment was good enough. Right. It, I mean, there, there's some art that just have to serve their purpose at the time that they come out, and that's when they're the most significant. I do also want to emphasize that when I say that, you know, Get Out is kind of eye-opening for people, of course I mean a non-Black audiences, non-Black Americans, because from what I understand from Black audiences, it's, it's more that it's uh, affirming, right? Sure, I think yeah, I think that is an important important point to emphasize that uh, neither of us are black. Um, we are going to interact with that film very differently than someone who is black. Uh, so just to kind of wrap up, since this is going to be our last film in the animation theme that we're doing, uh, I wanted to talk a little bit. One of the more interesting things I've found kind of during this this brief exercise with these four films is that we're we're really prone 
to placing animation typically within its own genre. Uh, occasionally, we will distinguish between like there's animation, there's like anime, um, but usually we will kind of corral it all together. And then like live action film being the actual, like the real substantive diverse stuff, all animation is a singular genre. Is there any merit to separating them in this way? And maybe what, like, what is different specifically about the experience of watching something animated versus something that's live action? I feel like animation should also, I mean, I think it's helpful to view it within itself. And that's kind of why we're having this theme of animation with these four films, but I also feel like it's important to view every animated film within the genre that it's also associated with, so that we kind of get away from the belief that animation is just for children, or just for weebs, or just for quote-unquote adults, the way maybe Family Guy or South Park is, Um, and that it can lend itself to a lot of different genres, just like live action can. Well, okay, so there have been a lot of examples of American or, like, Western films kind of, I suppose if you put it politely, borrowing, but more accurately stealing from animated films, specifically Japanese films. Uh, So the most obvious example being The Matrix and Ghost in the Shell. Also, my understanding is that Black Swan was largely lifted from the film Perfect blue so that that's kind of a side note but i i guess i'm wondering just in the sense of like if we were to watch something in kind of both its live action and its animated form what is it about animation that that feels different because we we talked a little bit earlier about like american animation european animation then also the distinction between between like both of those and japanese animation what really is a different feeling between watching something with like physical people where you're seeing photographs of and watching something that is drawn or perhaps, you know, digitally drawn on screen? For me, I think it's the eye candy aspect of it. And I think that's why for better, or for worse, um, animation gets associated so much with children because the bright colors and the kind of, you know, physics defying action of the characters can keep kids' attention really well, and it keeps my attention really well. You know, something else I think about is how animated films tend to be shorter because they are so labor-intensive, and maybe an advantage of that is that it makes for tighter storytelling. But primarily, I think it's it's just that with live action film, obviously you can still have a feast for the eyes, but at the same time, you see live action people all the time, or at least we used to when we were able to go out of our houses. But you know, um, <laughs> it's 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 not as novel as getting to see drawings move, you know. Yeah, and I, I, think, I think kind of an interesting thing that complicates this whole discussion is that while obviously animated film was, is, and continues to 
be an artistic venture and we're, we're still seeing animated films and TV shows and everything. The video game industry uh, with, with really few exceptions is entirely based on animated characters. Um, now, obviously video games are very, very different from film because of the kind of added element of interactivity. And so they're, kind of the number of things they can do and how they affect the audience is, is very, very different. But I do think it's interesting that that's like so much of animation is really kind of concentrated specifically within that industry now, because the number of video games being produced and the amount of money being poured into them and everything far outpaces the amount of money within like animated film in general. Um, so, Monica, I'm curious, would you recommend this film? Yeah, sure. Why not? Faint praise as ever. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I would recommend it. Uh, I think it's fun. The um, I think the, the elements of allegory are really especially infuriating, but it's really wonderful to look at. It, it's, it's, it's really a gorgeous movie. Do you know what it, it keeps reminding me of? It rem- <laughs> For some reason, when I was watching it, I kept thinking of Schoolhouse Rock, which actually began in 1973. So you could, I mean, oh, yeah. <laughs> that's so, f- I, I think the shading is similar, right? Maybe that's why, yeah. <laughs> that does it for our episode on Fantastic Planet. I'd like to mention our sources for this episode. The wonderful article, What is Estranged in Science Fiction Animation? by Istvan Cicery Rone Jr., which appeared in Simultaneous Worlds Global Science Fiction Cinema, edited by Jennifer L. Freely and Sarah Ann Wells. Uh, I also consulted the article by Michael Brook. Fantastic Planet Gambus Amalga, which appears on the Criterion website. And as always, I consulted Wikipedia. Uh, if you want to get in contact with us, we are at Mayday Matinee on Twitter. Maybe Today Matinee on Facebook and Instagram. If you want to send us an email, we are Maybe Today Matinee at gmail.com. Also, if you want to help support the podcast, we are Maybe Today Matinee on Patreon. Join us next week for the beginning of our October month of horror with the 1964 film Onibaba. I'm David. I'm Monica. And this has been Maybe Today Matinee. Wow.